Hi, this is Roger Bartlett. Are you here? Well, if I had a dollar to wager, I'd say you're here. And you're tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour. Oh, we've got an interview today with Roger Bartlett that originally went out on the radio. It's been tucked away since 2007, but now it's a pleasure to bring this to you. You're about to hear your host Paul's interview with songwriter-guitarist Roger Bartlett. Roger Bartlett's a solo artist and was also the frontman for the band Hell's Kitchen. Oh, Roger was also the very first ever member of Jimmy Buffett's Coral Reefer Band. Interesting, huh? Let's have a little history lesson. Back in the beginning, Jimmy Buffett typically performed solo and would then sometimes have harmonicist Greg Fingers Taylor informally sit in. Then in 1974, Buffett started his first official Coral Reefer Band with just one other musician. Accompanying Buffett was Roger Bartlett on guitar. The next year, Buffett added Harry Daly on bass, Philip Fajardo on drums, Fingers Taylor on harmonica and keyboards. And since he was the first band member, Roger Bartlett is known as the original guitarist of Jimmy Buffett's Coral Reefer Band. We hope you enjoy this in-depth interview with Roger Bartlett. Oh, in addition to talking about the old days of Jimmy Buffett's Coral Reefer Band, he talked about his life in Manhattan, Manhattan, New York. Roger talked about his songs, which have appeared in some unusual places, including the movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Roger Bartlett will tell you all about his childhood in Louisiana as the son of Ray Bartlett, famed radio host of the show Groovy Boy, The Boogie Master. Before we begin the interview, we'd like to invite you to please subscribe to Paul Leslie's YouTube channel. It's free and it's fun. And we've got dozens more interviews and reviews that'll be added by the end of 2023. We thank you for subscribing. Helps the show, helps us, and it helps you. And with that, there's really only one thing left to do. Let's begin the interview with Roger Bartlett. I live in Manhattan. Oh, okay. You like it there? Yeah, I, I love Manhattan. I, you know, before I moved to Vegas, I, I lived in Vegas for oh, a little over a year. But I lived in Manhattan, you know, forever before that. So, you know, even though I was born in Louisiana and grew up in Arkansas and Texas, I moved here a long time ago. And, uh, you know, it, they call it the capital of the world. You know, within within... Within, uh, you know, three miles of my house, or well, within three blocks of my house, you can get anything you can think of. And some things you never imagine. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty tempting. <laughs> so you were born in Shreveport, Louisiana. I was, yeah. Did uh, growing up in Louisiana, did you get into interested in the uh, Louisiana styles of music? Well, you know, uh, I was born in Louisiana. My father was a disc jockey at the time. He was on a radio station, KWK8, and he had a radio show called 
Groovy Boy, the Boogie Master. And he was also the announcer for the Louisiana Hayride, which at that time was, was a competitor with the Grand Ole Opry. So I sort of had the dual influence, or the, the, the triple influence of, you know, the Cajun stuff that was going all around me, the blues stuff that my dad played on the radio, and the country stuff that, you know, filtered in through the Hayride. You know, the the people that were appearing on the Hayride at that time were like Hank Williams, uh, Lee Wells, Johnny Horton, Jim Reeves, um, Johnny and Jack, and, you know, so, uh, and Elvis came on later, back before he met Colonel Tom, when he was just the king of the hillbillies. And, uh, you know, went out to have... Uh, uh, raw oysters with my dad when I was a kid with me and him and Roy Orbison and Stonewall Jackson. So, you know, it was a, it was a, a fertile, uh, ground to develop musically. Yeah, definitely. So growing up, what kind of music was he, was your personal favorite? Well, you know, I, I've always had a problem that my tastes are, are so eclectic. You know, I like every kind of thing that's good. You know, I like the blues. I like the funk. I like the jazz. I like the country. I like the bluegrass. I like the rock. You know, I like the, I like some of the metal. I like some of the electronica, you know, anything that's really good, you know, I'm sort of drawn to. And, and, uh, it's great for me in that, you know, I don't get bored with one kind of thing, but it's bad for me in that, you know, it's hard, seems hard for me to stay within the lines of a, of a style. So how did you make the, the leap from being a music fan to being a musician? Well, my uncle Tommy, uh, when I was, uh, I guess about 10 or 11 had a guitar school. He and his wife, his wife taught the accordion and he taught guitar. And so he taught me out in the West Texas town of El Paso, beautiful, beautiful brown eyes and hang down your head, Tom Dooley. And, um, you know, I played that for a while and I sort of let up, you know, uh, I played for about a year and I, and then I didn't play that much again until I was about 14. You know, when the Beatle thing started happening. And then I picked the guitar back up and, and, uh, we got a garage band going. Our first band was called The Legends. And we were legends, at least in our own mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you end up, uh, uh, being a coral reefer? Well, I lived in Nashville four different times, and one of the times I lived in Nashville, I was working with uh, two guys, Mike Lind and George Worthington, and we had a, an acoustic trio called the Outlaw Brothers, and we happened to open for Jimmy Buffett at a place called the Exit Inn there in Nashville, which was so named because the front door was barred closed and came in through the back. Then. I I don't know, a year later, a year and a half or something like that, uh, I'd gone to Austin, Texas 
with uh, a new partner, a guy named Bill Callery. Uh, and we played down in Austin for a while, and then, you know, we sort of had different musical directions, and we split up as a group, but I was playing bass and mandolin for him at a club called Castle Creek that uh, a guy named Doug Moyes ran, and uh, Jimmy happened to be the headliner, and Bill was opening for him, and, uh, you know, I was, I just started sitting in with Jimmy on the gig, and he liked it that I could just play along without having to rehearse or anything and just sing harmony, you know. And, and uh, at that time, he was having some success with Come Monday. So he was traveling alone. And uh, doing the road by yourself is, is a pretty loathsome endeavor. So, you know, he hired me out of Austin. I went from, you know, hanging out in Austin to the next thing I know we were playing at the Troubadour opening for Hoyt Axton, the guy who wrote Jeremiah was a bullfrog amongst other things. When the band was first coming together you know, you mentioned in the beginning it was just you and Jimmy Buffett and a lot of people I hear they say that uh, Greg Finger Taylor was the original core reefer but it was well, actually you. Well, you know, Fingers did go out and, and play a few gigs with him. He was actually, at that time, he was with Larry Raspberry and the High Steppers. So in that respect, you know, he was out on the road with Jimmy before I was, but only for a gig here and a gig there. I was the original Coral Reefer in that I was the first guy to go out on a regular basis with him on the road. One of the songs you wrote, uh, I, I was listening to, uh, Fool for a Blonde. And that was in the, the, the uh, classic, <laughs> the classic movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. How, how did you get the inspiration for, for that song? Well, you know, I, I have a, a, a long history of blonde. And, uh, so that contributed some, but, uh, me and my friend Bill Callery, when we got down, we used to go to, to a, a sidewalk cafe, right? Austin has the University of Texas there. And there was a sidewalk cafe called Les Amis. And, um, you know, we would sit out there and, and drink coffee and watch the college girls walk by. And there used to be this one waitress at Les Amis. Her name was Karen Ford, I believe, who was just, um, uh, the babe of babes. And, uh, although she was not a blind, you know, she ended up with, with Bill for a while. But, uh, there, there seems to be, uh, um, a surplus of blondes in Texas. I don't know why, but I'm for it. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed a lot of the songs you wrote for City Street seem to be, uh, influenced by women. It seemed like well, a lot of songs, <laughs> which is a good thing, I think. Well, I mean, you know, how many songwriters could you say that about? Yeah, but I mean, I I, I thought that too. But like listening to your music, it seems uh, it seems especially prevalent. <laughs> but they're they're good. They're great songs. Uh, I like the song. Uh, I don't care. It reminds me a, a lot of uh, a lot of people I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, I remember the girl I wrote that about. Uh, unfortunately, he already had a boyfriend. <laughs> you know, but but uh, there was many times that I didn't let that stand in my way. But, uh, <laughs> as as I got a little older, you know, I began to realize the error of my ways. When uh, after the first year that you and Jimmy Buffett toured, when it was just you and he, uh, the next year he picked up some more people. He had, or maybe it was the year after that, when he picked up the drummer Philip Fajardo and uh, Harry Daly on bass, and of course Fingers Taylor on harmonica. I was wondering, how did that come about? The putting, how did he find these other guys? Uh, well, that that's. An interesting story. Actually, Philip was a friend of mine from Austin, and he'd been playing around Austin, so I, I grabbed him. And at that time, Jimmy was managed by a guy named Don Light, and Don Light uh, had another artist named Go Gribner, G-O-V-E, and uh, Go knew Harry, so that's where Harry came from, and you know. Fingers had been around, you know, all, off and on for the whole time, so that's where he popped up from. I heard Fingers Taylor say that uh, throughout all the incarnations of the Coral Reefer Band, uh, he told me, he said, the best ever lineup was Roger Bartlett, Harry Daly, uh, Philip Bardo, and himself. Well... That's that's very flattering of him to say so, you know, and um, you know I'll I'll uh, write that down so I can bring it out whenever uh, I hear him talking later. <laughs> but I tell you, Jimmy's band now is excellent. Uh, his guitar player Peter Mayer is just amazing, and Roger Goose is an excellent drummer, and uh, Jim Mayer is a excellent bass player, and and uh, Mike Utley. You know, what more could you ask for than Mike Godley? I mean, he plays great piano. He's a producer. He's a writer. You know, actually, Utley did come in with us off and on back in those days. He was working for Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge. But uh, when they were off the road and he was available, we, we brought him out on the road with us then, too. I wondered if maybe what he meant was the band in, in that day um, you know, the band, I got to agree, it, it's a really tight band right now, but the band in, well, at least the old recordings I've heard, it was more of a, uh, relaxed kind of sound and more of a, it sounded more like a, or I don't know how to put it in, in words exactly, more like a rock band, you know? Yeah. Like kind of more, I don't know, <laughs> I can't put it in words. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, we were a little, a little, a little more raw, a little edgier. You know? Raw, that's the word. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was more ragged edges to what we did. And, uh, you know, part of that was because, um, we were partying like it was 1999. <laughs> Are all the stories that, uh, I've heard through <laughs> about, well, you know, probably. <laughs> I guess with a with a band name like the Coral Reefers, what can you expect? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, you know, back in those days, we had we had a T shirt that we called the D and O Awards. That it was the Drunken Outrageous Award, 
And, um, you know, if you threw up, it was an automatic win. And, uh, you know, so it, the, the, uh, DNO award sort of traveled between the different members of the band. Whoever got the drunkest and did the most outrageous stuff, you know, uh, got the t-shirt and, you know, it was quite a competition because, um, you know, we, we did explore the limits of, uh, artificial inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> You called in to the show uh, a while back, and you said uh, you said thank you to Jimmy Buffett for putting you and Roxy in the same room. But oh, that, yeah. <laughs> but that you were uh, you were uh, sorry that you didn't make the most of it. But I was just wondering because this has been in my mind for a while. Who is Roxy? Well, Jane uh, Buffett had a friend back in those days named Roxy Rogers who was just uh, a total babe. And, um, you know, back in those days, uh, you know, there might have been, the budget might have been a little thin now and then. And, uh, you know, so to save on rooms, they stuck me and her in a room together. Of course, in my my state of of, uh, inebriation, you know, I mean, you you reflected about the subject of, of many of my songs. Well, you know, when we were in a room together, my initial thought was, "Oh boy." <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that wasn't her thought as well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's like going into a donut shop and and uh, you know having the the uh, the counter locks back there. <laughs> I, I noticed there's one of your songs. There was one that you cut both on the Hell's Kitchen album, but you also did uh, on the Live at the Windjammer album, which was a reunion of the first Coral Reaper band. And the song is called Going Down to New Orleans. Oh, yeah. And I take you uh, that that's a city that you can appreciate. I do love New Orleans. Uh, I haven't been down there since Katrina. Uh, but actually that song came from a, a friend of mine, Zaev Gilad, who's an Israeli filmmaker, uh, did a movie called Dog Run. It has a, a big segment that, that occurs in New Orleans. And he used a bunch of music that he didn't license. And then when he finally got a distributor, he went in to license the music and the costs were just prohibitive. So he had to get all new music. So for, for the New Orleans segment, you know, he had a Professor Longhair song in there and about Mardi Gras. And he wanted me to write something like that. So that's where that song came from. And it was in the movie Dog Run, which was a small independent film that it played, I think the major markets. It played uh, New York, L.A., it played Europe. Let's see, I get royalties from, like, uh, Belgium and France and Spain and Italy from that movie. So, you know, all the, I, I do love New Orleans, though. I imagine you like uh, the culinary offerings that New Orleans provides. Indubitably. <laughs> <laughs> The song "Give Me Something to Eat." Oh yeah, well that that was actually written by a friend of mine named Chris Carter, who you know 
uh, ironically enough, is a little skinny guy. You know, it's always the skinny guys who go in there and can eat mounds and mounds of stuff. When, uh, you know, all I have to do is go by the, in the, the place that serves bonnets and, and, you know, I just sniff in there and I gain five pounds. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, but, uh, give me something to eat it was, it was a great song. I love that song. That's why I did it. I still do it. One of the songs you wrote, uh, Dallas, was covered by Jimmy Buffett. And I was wondering how you uh, got the inspiration to to do that song. Well, at that time, I, I lived in Dallas, and I was with a band called Bacchus, you know, the name of the Greek partying guide. Uh, and the band began, began to crumble. Uh, the girl singer in the band, uh, began to have psychotic episodes or schizophrenic episodes. And, uh, you know, the, the we were playing, uh, Las Vegas style clubs. And at that time I was a, a stone hippie boy. And, uh, they had me wearing a short haired wig, you know, um, I, I will have to say, though, we did get to open for some great people. We got to open for Count Basie, and we opened for Bill Haley in the Comet, and we opened for Jackie Wilson, you know, who had, uh, your love has lifted me higher. So, I mean, we, we had some great gigs, but uh, the whole thing just started falling apart, and uh, you know, that's the, the promo man part of the, the bridge there. But, you know, looking back on that time, I, I might have been a little hard on Dallas itself. And it was just uh, really the the circumstances that I was experiencing at the time. Hmm. I wanted to know back uh, back in those the, the early days of the Coral Reefer Band, was there any fun? Is there any fun memory that uh, still kind of keeps in your mind? Um, some sentimental kind of memory about the Coral Reefer Band. Um, you know, it, the Coral Reefer Band was n- not exactly a sentimental endeavor. It was more like party time, you know? I mean, it was great times. We had some really terrific times. Uh, you know, I can't tell you, you know, to, to have those experiences, you know, um, you know, was, was, was unique and, and, uh, uh, I cherish them, you know, and, and, uh, I try not to go over them too often because you want to look ahead, but, you know, uh, I, I will, I will have to say the one thing about being in the Coral Reefer Band, not very sentimental, but, you know, one, one of the greatest things about working for Jimmy Buffett is that he is such a reader and he used to pass me books that he read from different authors. And, uh, you know, that was an exceptional thing. I love that. You know, he introduced me to a lot of great authors. The, uh, the soundtrack for the movie Rancho Deluxe has a song that you sing on. Left me with a nail to drive. Yeah. And I was wondering, uh, weren't you in that movie? No, no. I wasn't. They wouldn't bring for my airfare to come up there and be in there. Oh, I see. So the band consisted of, uh, I think Fingers made it up there for it. Um, 
but it was like, uh, I don't know if he was in Strangers. I think maybe the actor Warren O was, uh, played the harmonica player. I can't remember who the band was, but, you know, I remember at the time they wouldn't spring for my airfare. It was not in the budget. So how did you come to do the vocals on the song? Well, um, you know, Jimmy was working on songs for the, for the movie. And, you know, as always in, in the, in the music business, there was a, a big deadline. So, uh, you know, that song just kind of got whipped out. And then when we went into the studio, I think he'd been singing for a while. He said, Hey, do you want to sing this one? I said, Sure, no problem. So that's how it was just sort of serendipitous. When you're not doing the music, uh, either in performing or recording, what kind of stuff do you usually do with your spare time, if there is any? You know, I play the guitar. You know, I just sit around with a with a guitar in my lap while I watch TV. I walk around the house with a guitar thrown across my back. And when I go into the to the bathroom, I take the guitar with me. You know, so it's just like. You know, I am a reader. I love to read. You know, uh, I, I, uh, living in New York City, I love architecture. I do go to museums and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, I love to go out and, uh, see live music. I mean, especially now, you know, you're going to see the last of live music, you know, because it's, if things keep going the way it's going, it's going to disappear. What makes you say that? Well, clubs are disappearing. You know, uh, used to, whenever there was a dance club, they always had a band. Now when you go to a dance club, they never have a band. You know, there used to be middle class, uh, music and, you know, steady gigs all around. And, and, you know, you could work at a club and you could work there six nights a week, you know, and you could work there for, for, you know, seven months or 10 months or, you know, there's no gigs like that anymore. You know, there used to be a lot more clubs with live music. Now they all have recorded music or DJs. And it makes you kind of wonder if it, it's like all the technology, everything is so, everything is so electronic now. Everything is so instant. And it's almost like uh, we're losing something in the process. Well, you know. We're losing the rawness, like we mentioned. Yeah, we do lose the rawness. You know, everything is very slick. You know, and people get used to sitting around in their their media uh, cave there, and and uh, you know, I guess they feel like you know, why can't I go hear somebody sing uh, you know Justin Timberlake songs when I can just put on a CD and hear Justin Timberlake or watch a video? Or but at some point, you know, you know, they're killing the goose that laid the golden egg because uh, you know they're. The, the world is emerging and, and, uh, you know, the United States is not going to be preeminent in, in, uh, science or art or, you know, culture or whatever, you know, uh, if, if, uh, you know, they, they decide that mediocrity, mediocrity, mediocrity is good enough, you know, it's, we're in the age of good enough. When you had, uh, uh, after you'd been playing with, with Jimmy Buffett for a couple of years, how did it come that you left the band? 
Well, you know, at that time, looking back on it, you know, there was a, a, a steady stream of people following us around with names like Captain Easy, you know, and uh, Captain Easy had a shrimp boat, and he'd go out for a few days, and he'd come back, but he never seemed to catch any shrimp. But he still seemed to drive a Mercedes and have plenty of money. So he also had some other goodies along with him, and as well as other people. And, you know, I began to get to the point of where, you know, my cheek was twitching and my finger was twitching and, you know, I was getting a little paranoid and, uh, you know, I think something in my body said, you know, something in my subconscious said, it's time to jump this ship, you know, so, uh, at the time I, I was, you know, intent on going to do my own music, but I think really way down, deep down, it was really because I was getting Overserved in the artificial inspiration department. I see. And uh, what happened after you left the band? What did you do next? Well, I moved to New York City. And, um, you know, I started playing with my own band around New York City. And uh, I, I picked up a manager. I, I uh, got on a compilation album out of uh, WMMR Philadelphia. And I got some more songs and some other movies. And uh, I began to, uh, you know, as a songwriter back in those days, you know, to do a song demo, you had to hire a band, you know, you had to go into the studio. And so, you know, one song would easily cost you, you know, a thousand dollars to do with studio time and music. And so as I, you know, spent, you know, I don't know, eight or ten thousand dollars a year working on on song demos you know i began to engineer myself so i began to do some engineering in the studio and got a job in the studio as an engineer and began to produce some other people and and uh you know do different stuff i had a tv show here for a while on cable tv called midnight in manhattan and i was the night crawler and uh got in a couple other movies. Um, you know, just it's that sort of stuff, you know, did sideman work for other people. A uh, a few years ago you did uh a live C D. Well actually it was kind of like a collaborative effort. You had uh it, there was uh Dave Bell on it, uh Philip Fajardo, the late Harry Daly. Uh, Fingers Taylor, Deborah McCall, Keith Sykes, live at the Windjammer. Tell me how that came to, uh, to be. Well, um, Bob Robinson of that Parrot Head Club down there in, in, uh, South Carolina got us all together at the Windjammer Club there in the Isle of Palms, on the Isle of Palms, uh, which is just outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And, um, you know, we all showed up and the club owner happened to have, uh, a, a Mac that was hooked up with 24 tracks of digital audio. So, uh, you know, I talked to him before the thing to see about recording the thing and, and, uh, you know, I, I 
you know, tried to send out CDs to everybody of everybody else's songs, so everybody had a good idea of what was going on uh, when they got there. And, um, you know, I hadn't seen, uh, you know, some of those people. I hadn't seen Jace Bell in a million years. I hadn't seen Deborah McCall in a million years. I hadn't seen Keith Dice in a long time. Um, you know, I'd seen Harry several times down in D.C., you know, saw Fingers occasionally. Although I think that was a, no, that wasn't. Fingers came into New York a couple of times. I met him and his, his then wife and their two little boys. And, um, so we had like very minimal rehearsal time. You know, Bob was in a band, but it was kind of an acoustic band and he didn't realize we actually needed amplifiers for our guitars. He thought we were just going to play through the PA. So. We were scrambling at last minute trying to come up with amplifiers and come up with equipment here and equipment there. And, you know, the fact that we got on stage and did so well was was just nothing short of a miracle. There's a lot of, excuse me, there's a lot of really, uh, really great cuts on that. It really surprises me that it wasn't a, a thought out. I figured it was probably planned and, and all that. Well, not really that planned. You know, I sent out CDs to everybody, but but Jay got the CD, and there was nobody around to tell him what it was. You know, Jay's blind, and so he didn't listen to the CDs. And uh, he got there sort of at the last minute. He'd done a gig the night before, and I don't think he really listened to the CDs. But, but I, uh, Harry did. Harry listened to the CDs, and Philip listened to the CDs. So, you know... The, the basic rhythm section, I think, was was cool with tunes, and uh, you know, came out pretty well. You wrote a song, kind of in memorial uh, to Harry Daly. Uh, yeah, Heaven's Man. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about Harry Daly? Well, Harry was a great guy. Harry was a a gentle guy. Uh, uh, he had a good heart. You know, he was a good bass player, he was a good singer, he was a loyal friend. You know, uh, in the early days of of the Coral Reefer band, you know, uh, we all piled around and had a great time, and the camaraderie between us was, was really unusual, and, and uh, it was nice. And, uh, you know, after Harry left the band, Harry stayed on beyond when I did. When I, beyond when I left. And, you know, I don't know. You know, there was, there was such a, such a large amount of artificial inspiration going around, you know, that, um, by the time he left, he'd done some irreparable damage to his body. You know, he, 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 uh, the, the doctor told him, you know, some of, some of that partying had caused his hip sockets to dry up and, and, you know, in his 40s, he had hip replacements. And, um, you know, during that time, you know, uh, you know, it was just bad for everybody, you know. And, uh, you know, you, you can see by the fact that, that uh, after he left, I mean, also during that time, he, he, he got hepatitis C, I think, which was like, you know, caused him, you know, terrible pain. And, and, uh, just debilitated him, you know, and, and, 
you know, due to the fact that, that, you know, he had so many medical problems. I mean, that was, you know, one of the causes of, of his untimely death. So after all these years, uh, do you, uh, have you seen Jimmy Buffett lately or, or do you ever see him? I do see him occasionally. I, I did see him in Las Vegas. I moved out to Las Vegas for about a year and, um, when I first got there, uh, about a year ago, October, they came through and played two weekends in Vegas. And, um, you know, for, for, like, I was just barely in Vegas and Jimmy invited me up on stage to sit in on Margaritaville and said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the original Coral Reaper here, I want to introduce him to Las Vegas. <laughs> and you know, people went, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, despite the fact that everybody there was from out of town, you know, <laughs> it uh, it was very nice, and I enjoyed it. Going backstage, talked to him for a while, and uh, you know, it's hard to talk to people really backstage because you know they're getting ready to go up and play, and I'm, I know personally when I'm playing a gig somewhere, you know, I'm trying to focus in on the gig. And, uh, you know, uh, shooting the breeze backstage is really not my priority, but he did take out time to talk to me and, you know, it was really nice. Then this last year they came back and, um, uh, played, uh, the MGM grand again. I got down there to see them both weekends and, uh, you know, hung out a little with Utley and Peter Mayer and, and Robert Granich and, and Jim Mayer and, and, uh, you know, backstage a little bit, and they had some uh, had some special guests in this year. They had Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead, and and um, had. Have you heard this new album of his, Take the Weather With You? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's an excellent album. I think I I really like that album. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Uh, and uh, you know, I can't think of the name of the the, the band, the boy band, the three guys from uh, England who Gomez. Huh? Gomez? I guess. Um, they were there and they sat in too, so. So, those, those are the last times that I saw any Buffett. Do you have any, uh, any, any plans to come out with another album or? I am working on a CD right, right as, as we speak. Interesting. I, I just put down some new tracks. I've got, uh, I think about five songs recorded. And I'm working on a sixth song right now. As soon as I get 10 or 12, I'm going to pop that record at them. All right. Imagine there'll be a couple songs about women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So when you look back on, on your life, what would you say is the best thing, has been the best thing about being Roger Barla? My family. You know, I have the greatest family you could ever have. You know, they've always been there for me. And, um, you know, they've always been supportive. You know, I look around at other people's families and see them trying to sabotage each other and, and you know, ragging on each other. And, you know, I can't say that my family's perfect, but, you know, when it's, when it's time for them to be there for me, there they are. So my last question, since this program goes out all over the world, what would you, Roger Bartlett, 
like to say to the world. Come see me play. Buy my CD. (laughs) (laughs) Go to cdbaby.com. Look for Roger Bartlett. All right. Well, Mr. Bartlett. Go to to rogerbartlett.com, too. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I thank you for giving us the time. Oh, nice talking to you, Paul. It was my pleasure. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.